Där har ni återigen Ingemar Fast, konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern och han har den stora äran att utropa Lyssna nu till samtalet mellan Eileen Miles i USA och Tone Sjönnesson. När inträffade det, undrar du? Den 9 maj 2019. Njut! That's exciting. I know. I was like Eileen Miles previously walking across the stage to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here with you, Eileen. Yes. Um, it's not the first time we met. We met uh, two years ago in Louisiana, Louisiana, and we liked each other. So we did. Yes. We did. So, so I'm happy okay. to be here again with you. Okay. Um, but let's start with a poem reading. No, yeah. not a poem from uh, Chelsea Girls. All right, let's do, do it. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Um, is there a pl- there is not a place I'll do it here, right? But some <laughs> there used to be. You want to po- do it here? Yeah, I'll walk yeah. among you guys and yeah. No, no, no. This is great. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, no more naturalistic. <laughs> so I'm just reading a, a few pages, and it's from a um. There's a chapter called "My Couple," and it's basically the the Eileen character gets involved with this couple at a certain point in time. So it's just a few pages from it. Um, Because, of course, I think uh, the Eileen character was more in love with the woman. And so mostly when I think of her kitchen, I think of bread. A big bag of it would roll strewn, stumbling out, getting stale in the air. It seems so outrageous to me, this tiny advertisement of plenty. That's what her sexiness was like. Once in a while, I'd walk with her up First Avenue in her old world way, stopping at different stores. No matter how many tumbled rolls I'd spotted this morning, she'd buy another bunch, and she'd throw that bag on the counter, too, when she got home. Because she drank beer from morning to night, there was always a refrigerator full of rolling rock. The kids were always drinking juice, everyone was smoking, and occasionally Keith would indulge me in a couple of pills. For him, it was dangerous, and she would beg me to stop supplying him with them, because then he and I would be even more adamant that we stay up till four or five, and she had to get up in the morning to work, and someone had to walk the kids to school. Also, I think he got kind of nasty when he was speeding, and they were alone. He didn't need to drink with his pills like I did. Pills alone can make you mean. I felt like I was right between them doing both. One night early on, we took some photographs of us all nude, of course, lying around in bed. They came out great. I was delighted because you couldn't tell what sex I was. I mean, you could, but I looked like a guy. They had them developed as slides, and the babysitter, a nice girl named Common, found them. You have a very interesting life, she told Grace one night before she went home. Some poets who babysat saw them too. It seemed like simple revelation wasn't enough. We needed to give proof. You had to see us as lovers. She would often look like she was weeping when she had to get up. I found that very moving. I'd go and see her at work during the day and would go out into the hallway with a big window and she'd look out that window into the wintry mid-afternoon sun and smoke and look exhausted. I'd get her to go for drinks with me sometimes at night and I would be really loaded saying, please, 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 but I don't remember what I was begging her for. To leave him and come away with me. What a deal. They bought my cigarettes. They were completely nice and generous. When I first met them, I was doing phone interviews someplace in the 30s at night. I was asking people if they knew what a VCR was. Nobody did. (laughs) 
There was a lot of drinking going on at work. People would be fired for drinking martinis out of frap cups. I quit that job and got a job at Paragon selling sneakers. She loved me working there because I would answer the phone saying Paragon, and she wrote a poem for me with that title. I wrote a poem called Wooden Floor and a lot of good poems that wound up in books and a sweet little one called Elk. The hips, the long avenues, if you're going two ways, all you need is one light to move. What does that mean, he said angrily. It's true, I said, you only need one light. He puffed. We showed each other everything we wrote. It was so twisted. Some I think I only showed her. Anyhow, I think I quit Paragon because I was sitting in Union Square Park one afternoon at lunchtime, and I knew I had to quit something, so I quit my job. <laughs> then I really lived off them, which he encouraged me to do, and she disapproved of. We took a vacation together out to Western Mass. We stayed at the Red Lion Inn. I think the idea was I was this weird-looking nanny. We, bought some, we brought some Coke, and things got really mean. Her and I had our first serious conversation about writing. It was almost more disturbing. The other one was a writer, too. It was almost a very, very famous writer, so it's, it's sort of a gossipy story. <laughs> it was almost more disturbing than it was almost more disturbing than to have never had it at all. She really believed she was the only one, brilliant woman. Maybe her and I paid too much attention to each other, and he got mad. Then she wept and blamed everything on drugs. We visited some old friends of theirs out there, and that was fun. Poets I had never met, and they seemed really interested in me, and I liked that. Then they got it. The guy dug it. The woman disapproved. I remember her bringing us beers on a tray. She was a blonde. I think we went from September to February. My phone got turned off. It was nice in my apartment, so silent. I'd come home and write poems and go back for more. He would have, he would have had a separate affair with me. She wouldn't. We went to a Christmas party with her old friends. We got really blasted and danced in this crazy circle. That night was really fun. It was about how little shame you had. I ripped the seat of my pants and we kept dancing. I brought them once to hear a band uptown, Ten Pan Alley. This old friend of Barbara Barg's with the best southern accent lifted her glass of whiskey to me down the row of the bar and said, I really like your couple, Aline. Thank you. Thank you. What an amazing way to start. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, I know I had to quit something, so I quit my job. Yes. Uh, both in your poetry and your prose, you have these lines that just stays with the reader, like with me and I guess a lot of readers forever. And for me, like I have lines that almost became are like my mantras or like a small prayer or things I say to myself like during the day. Um, Cause I'm really in love with your way around a good line. Uh -huh. um, one of them are not a poet, but a donut or a myth. <laughs> um, I really feel like that's about me. <laughs> And I have another one, it's from Merck, and I have another one uh, from Peanut Butter. That's, uh, I am an enemy of change, as you know. All the things I embrace as new are in fact old things re-released. Swimming, the sensation of being dirty in body and mind, summer as a time to do nothing and make no money, prayer as a last resort. Mm. And I really think about that all the time, like new things re-released as new. No, uh -huh. old things re-released as new. What is that? 
you're asking me? <laughs> like, That's not the actual question, but I've been thinking yeah. about it for like 10 years, so I have to ask you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like here we are sitting here with a with a book that's re-released. <laughs> so yeah, very, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I feel course. like I'm, I'm like a band that came back. <laughs> no, it's really funny. Like swimming or prayer. Yeah. Um, that's funny, prayer is a band that came back. Um, and one thing I really like about prose in general, and I think your prose especially, is like in prose you can have this very wasteful attitude towards beauty. Uh -huh. You just say a bunch of stuff, like following each other, not really signaling to the reader where the sore spot is. Uh -huh. um, espe especially when you don't work like with the classic story arc, right. and you don't. Uh, and poetry is like much more respectful towards the line, like holding it up to the light, just mm -hmm. like giving it a pedestal. Do you treat your lines differently in your prose or when you write poetry? Like, is there a line sometimes that you're like, this is so good, I need to keep it for a poem? I don't want to waste it in prose. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I think the thing, the word waste is really great because I think that's the thing that's so much fun about writing yeah. prose is that you just, in a way, the first thing you do is you just cover piles of paper. Yeah. You know, you just go crazy and make a big mess, you know, and the, and the only thing that encourages you that is along the way you've, you've hit out, you've knocked out these good lines. Yeah. And so I think it's a like lot. It's like buried between. Hmm? It's like buried between all the other lines. Yeah. And you sort of amuse yourself. I feel like that part of that. I mean, I, I'm like, I, I think like a lot of us, I think I'm, I was a class clown growing up. I was like a funny kid in school because I was awkward and I was like a little dyke and, and it was just like what could this be, you know, and I was always in trouble, but I was funny. And that's, that was somehow how I, and so I think part of the thing about writing is, is it sort of like, it, it drives you. If I think it's funny, then I'll keep going. And yeah. it, it's not like I have to keep being funny, but a little funny every now and then it sort of makes it feel like, um, it's pleasurable because yeah, I wouldn't course. do it if it wasn't fun. No, of you course. Know? But like, do you know, I, I think like, of course, the distinction between poetry and prose is very hard. But almost, but not that hard, really. I, I think it's hard, but it's not hard. Do you know when you start writing, like, this is prose or this is poetry? Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, like, with prose, you kind of have a, um, you have a line. Like, I know that a, a story or a chapter or a book, I just write a line and I'm like, okay, that's, it's almost like you can feel a whole lot mm. that will follow that. You know, it's, so it's kind of like, it's not quite a subject, but it's sort of, it's sort of, it is, it's just a good line that just has a whole kind of shaking tail where a poem never seems to, like you might hear the line and you've got to write the tale right away. Okay. With poetry. Yeah, I don't think you can really, I mean, I can't usually save it too much. So you don't like get a line and then like a few days later you get another line. It's a, po a poem comes as a whole? Yeah, I mean, once in a while I've done that thing where you, you kind of, you make kind of a Frankenstein poem and mm. it's a line here and a line there and you put them all together. And, but that's not always, that's hardly ever my method. It's usually, I just, it's like, boom, the thing happens. Straight away. But one thing I hate about prose, like I really love prose, but it's like so much explaining, like explaining, 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 like moving between spaces, like mm. going out the door and going down the hall and then into the next door and blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. But the thing, the thing. About but you don't do it. It's not it's that much. In, like in Chelsea Girls, it's not that much explaining or moving between spaces. No, 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 no. Though it's sort of like you sort of know where you are, and yeah. so it's almost like bringing a lot of crap into that room. Yeah. But like, do you do that like with editing, or do you uh, build the? 
Yeah, yeah, because the thing is, like, I will make a big mess. Not so much. This was sort of discreet. It took me, like, 14 years to write this book. Okay. Which is sort of crazy. So I would write, like, one chapter, and I'd be like, great. And then a year would pass. Yeah. And then I would write another one. So I kind of, it wasn't so much I knew where I was going, but I knew what I was accumulating. But with books I've written since then, often what will happen is I'll have a really good surge. Like I'll write 10 pages and I'll be like, wow, this novel's, you know, (laughs) this is going really well. And that feels like the poem of the novel because then I'll think, okay, I think I know what follows that and I'll sit down and it'll just be a plate of garbage, (laughs) you know? And I mean like, no, that's not what follows that. And then I have to kind of wait again, Mm. you know? But it's sort of like, so I'll, I'll, I'll make all these piles of things and then the prop, the editing part is really fitting them together. And often you have to stop talking early and Mm. so that you can make these things connect kind Mm. of. Are you interested in plot? Plot? Yeah, is it called plot? No. No, no. No, not horrible. What what interests you with the novel then? I think novels are like movies. Mm. I love how movies move. You know, you kind of know where you are and then suddenly you just jump and you're someplace else. And you kind of have to know what the connection is. Like, is it a pun or a song or something? I mean, there's always, but it doesn't have to be a, in fact, it won't be a rational connection. Mm. It'll be like a, a visual one or a sonic one. Mm. And one thing I really like about Chelsea Girls and I like a lot of your other novels, Inferno, uh, Afterglow, uh, is like I'm very preoccupied with the anecdote right now. I really like the anecdote mm. and I want to like write a lot of anecdotes. Uh, and I really like uh, like Queer by Burroughs because it's just like a bunch of anecdotes in right, a bar. Right, 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 right. Um, and I had a friend who told me, I was discussing the anecdote the other week because I'm just thinking about it all the time. And, and he was like, no, I don't like the anecdote because it's just a show. Like yeah. it doesn't invite anyone in. Right. And I felt like I don't agree. But then maybe later I thought, yeah, I, gr- I agree, but I like the show. Uh-huh. Like I like having a show in front of me. Uh, and sometimes when I read Chelsea Girls or Inferno, I think about... I don't want to say anecdote because it sounds so small, but like retelling a story or like you're able to reconstruct a story and keeping the vibe of the story. Would you call this anecdotal? I never, I never would have, I never would have thought of that no. word. But I mean, I guess it's kind of true. I mean, I, th- I feel like it's more like episodic. Yeah. I think. Okay. What's you the know? difference? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that I've never thought the word anecdote. I mean, what is it about anecdote? Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like what the way that guy, I mean, I think that the story you just told about yeah. the guy, I mean, I feel like he doesn't like the idea because it's not his idea. Like, you know what you mean. Yeah, oh yeah, of course. You know, where he's like, no, no, an anecdote has these rules, but anecdote for you is sort of like a key into that world. Yeah. You know, and I just, I can't unlock that world with, I mean, because I, I really think, um, I really think about places the most. Okay, yeah. You know, it's sort of like, like with these, like there was, you know, like I wrote a chapter and then I'd be like, oh, Woodstock, I was at Woodstock. And I was like, okay, that's a really good, st- I mean, it's just like, who was at Woodstock, you know? <laughs> and also who was at Woodstock who was queer, you yeah. know? And, and all these things kind of pile up and stuff. And so it's kind of like, I just went to that place and all I have to do is, and that's the part, I don't have plots. I just go to a place and then I kind of download all the stuff that that place had, yeah. you know? So it's kind of like, it's like an act of memory, but it's like, you have to put your body there first. And yeah. then and then it'll tell you what the details are. So I don't think that's anecdote. I think it's something else. It's There's like some somewhere in Chelsea Girls that like you do this thing between imagining and remembering. Mm-hmm. Is that your? 
Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the word that I hate, I mean, what I really hate is when somebody will describe the stuff I do as memoir. I yeah, think yeah, it's, yeah. It's so corny. But you wrote the memoir. I wrote a dog memoir, and yeah. that was, <laughs> I intended that to be corny. I was like, I mean, I just feel like memoir, is, it's just inherently sentimental. You know, it's sort of like, oh, my memories, you know, my beautiful, valuable memories. And I would never, I just, it's just, I mean, I would feel terrible talking that way about my life. But I don't feel terrible talking that way about my dog's life. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. my beautiful dog, that dog. So you don't feel sentimental at all in your writing? I try not to be. I try to be the opposite. I try to, you know, kick the memories around. Yeah. Like disgusting memory, you know. Because <laughs> you know. it's just like if it felt precious, I couldn't do it. I feel like I'm always striving to have permission to do the thing. Like even being a poet, like I feel like I write the poems I write because I didn't know how a person got to be a poet when I first started taking writing classes mm. in college. It seemed like these kids with these terrible poems would just like read them in class and I would be like, how do they know they can do that? You know, I was writing poems but I just didn't have permission to be a poet. Mm. And so I think that the only way I could give myself permission was to let the poems sound like me so maybe no, nobody would notice that they were poems. Mm. And then I could do it, you know, or use or write them in my language. Mm. You know, and so I feel that way about it, you know, like if it was precious, if it was like, like, sentimental then I just wouldn't have the right to write mm. you know yeah I think for me like voice is the key word I think for a lot of your writing like this very strong Eileen voice that can't be mistaken for anyone else but you also have voices of others in your work mm -hmm. how do you work with dialogue because you insert a lot of dialogue in your work I mean, I feel like it's sort of like when I think about sometimes when there are certain people, you can't think about them without imitating them, <laughs> you know, and I think everybody doesn't have that problem. But I think it's sort of like they just you just be it's like be thinking about them is like becoming them, mm. you know, and you just go into that rhythm of that that personality kind of. And it's sort of like and it's sort of like how they come on stage and then how they sort of cease to be and then mm. you go back to the because I think it I do think a lot about film and voiceover and and before I ever wrote I was like really um obsessed with like recording like I thought being a DJ would be great and there was a real 70s 80s things about these kind of talk radio but before it was political mm. and it was more like weird lonely guy you know making confessions late at night on the radio and telling sensitive stories and yeah and i wanted and, and spalding gray do you know the performer spalding gray no he was you know there was a kind of long form performance art where you would sit down at a little table and tell these intense stories about your life and and so a, a lot of my my writing sort of comes out of that world yeah because you have like two levels in chelsea girls like protagonist eileen and then like retelling eileen like retelling the story Eileen. Mm. Like in the last uh, chapter of this book, you say at some point, this is Eileen from the future speaking. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which seems so self-conscious that it seemed like a good thing to do. Yeah, I know? really like it. But you're explaining a thing from the future, so that's why you had, I think you had to say, this is Eileen from the future. Yeah, and also it's sort of like when you, when you feel thrown out of the flow, I think, what you can do is say, I feel thrown out of the flow, and then you can get back in, mm. you know? But it's almost like, for me, I think often if I name the thing, then I can, you know, discard it and, and continue. Yeah. But you never use, like, quotation marks in your dialogue. No, no. Why? Well, because, well, actually, the first, the first chapter, the oldest chapter in this book is a chapter called Bread and Water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and know it was it. the one that I really, like, my girlfriend and I... That's a quite stressful chapter. 
Well, it's very, it's very urgent. It's very um, um, endangered, and mm. and we would, and it, it, it's just the chap. Like we were, I lived with this girlfriend in my apartment, and we were very poor, mm. and we wanted to make films. It was that moment where there was like a new, you know, independent filmmaker scene in the in the seventies and eighties, and and we wanted to make films, but we were such alcoholics, mm. we could just never get. You know, neither of us ever wanted to work. We had no money at all. And so we just loved to sit in bars and talk about the films we were going to make, you know. So I thought, I so actually the book began because I thought I'm just going to write the film because mm. we can't make the films, I'm going to write the film. And so I just kind of like, I had my manual typewriter and I just started writing our life as it was happening. Mm. And so it's really a transcription okay, of yeah. the moment. And it felt like, it felt like recording, mm. you know. And so it was sort of like, in a recording you don't go, quote, guess who's talking now? I thought, you know... <laughs> So I wanted to act as if, you know, if you heard a sound in the building, if the if the radiator clanked, I just wanted to let it clank and just keep going and have it just be like one stream. And you kept that method, like, for a lot of your work. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's been, I mean, I've had to fight with a lot of editors, too, mm. about keeping that method. But in Afterglow, you have, like, a proper scene between the do a dog and puppets. Yes. And then you have quotation marks. Yeah. Then, I, then I have, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, you really are a very cinematic writer. I think you have these really strong pictures in a lot of your novels that just like stays with the reader forever. Like, do you see these pictures and then you write them or do you access the pictures through writing? No, I see the pictures. I'm trying describing the pictures. Yeah. And then, of course, the pictures generate more pictures. Yeah. You know, but sometimes it's a joke. Like the, um, you mentioned um, there's a, chapter in my dog memoir which is called uh, the the puppets talk show and it was like when i was writing this book i was at an artist colony and and it's just like everything is like a series of jokes because i think um like when when i got this dog and the dog was my first dog of my life and i looked in the dog's eyes and i was like oh my god it's my father mm. you know and My father was a sweet alcoholic man that, you know, who's in this book mm. who died young because he drank so much, but we were very close and he totally was the kind of guy who would come back to be my do my dog. <laughs> you know, he absolutely because he was funny and he would just, you know, he mm. would do that. So I wrote I wrote this very I wrote all this stuff about explaining how a man comes back as a dog, mm. you know, and the whole cosmology and I got into this very weird kind of um you know, it was it um what do you call it? What's the theosophy? Mm. Just very, very strange, you know. And 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 it's it's that thing that's so interesting. And like when you and you're reading, like you read all these things in your life, and you think, where will I ever use that? Mm. And 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 various times when I would try and stop drinking, I would read these strange occult books, you know. And so a lot of them came out in this dog book. So so I was explaining how a dog would be my father. And so I read it and then people at this artist colony were like, is the dog going to talk? And I was like, oh, that's so gross. Is the dog going to... It seemed like such an artist colony question. But then my mind always works that way. It's always very fuck you. I was like, under what conditions would the dog talk? And I yeah. thought... If the puppets invited the dog to be on their talk show, of course the dog would talk. <laughs> you know, what else would the dog do? You know, and then the joke. So that was the next joke. And then I had to kind of animate that joke. Mm. You know, so it, again, I feel like I'm often like prodded by silly thoughts that mm. I thought, how can I make this silly thought be real? Mm. Yeah, of course. I really like it. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. You should all read it. It's amazing. Um, but you talked about like being a poet before, and I think Chelsea Girls, of course, is 
a lot about becoming a poet yes. or like the longing to become a poet and also this book that I love Inferno um, and, and this theme of like to be a poet often re-emerge in your work in different ways and forms and I have this quote from Inferno that I just want to read because I think it's really telling to, and also telling how it is to become a writer mm -hmm. Um, and it's from the beginning of Inferno. And Eileen has written a poem in class for the first time, and her teacher is delightfully surprised and reads the poem in front of the classroom. Uh, and afterwards, she says to young Eileen that maybe they could make an appointment and talk about her writing. Yeah. And you write, I was like a mute dog. I snatched the poem from her hand and walked into the hall. I can see my face standing on the elevator with many other faces looking out. And on the train and up the street, I smiled and I smiled. Cause I could know myself, that's all. Some lazy thing I could always do because I was dumb and not normal, but special. Something crazy, maybe that could be my job. I had that thought just briefly and then it was gone. What does that mean? Cause I could know myself, that's all. Um, I think I think it's sort of like it's like, I guess it's like claiming. I mean, it's claiming your stupidity mm. and and as your brilliance, mm. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like I think we're all familiar with ourselves, but we we're also convinced at the same time that it's wrong. Mm. That this, uh, there's something inherently wrong with the, with the way we are, even though we probably love it a lot, mm. you know. And so I think I, th I think that I think that was kind of a you claimed the dog talk show. What's, was that it? Like you could claim doing a dog talk show in the future? Yeah, but I mean that 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 kid. It's just like it's sort of like it, it, it when somebody sees you for the first. I mean, I think so many of us are writers because somebody said something. Yeah, of course. You know, it's sort of like I mean, there was that professor, and there was another professor who. I mean, I had a great professor in college who um, helped us so much because you know at the time I went to college when it was manual typewriters. It was so horrible, mm. and so first of all, you didn't know how to type, and then you would be all these typos, and then you would have this horrible, crazy-looking piece of paper, and you had to, you know, you had to have these thoughts, you had to organize these thoughts, you had to type these thoughts, and you had to make the paper look good. Yeah. And there was so many <laughs> pressures at once that this made writing just a horrible task, mm. you know. So this great professor said, just write in a notebook. And I already kept a diary. I knew mm. about writing in a notebook, but if you could write a paper in a notebook, and we handed in our notebooks mm. to this guy, and I remember him handing the notebook back, and he wrote, "I like your mind," and I was uh. like, "Oh my," you know, and I was like, "Oh my God!" <laughs> it was like I had gone to Catholic schools where the last thing in the world they ever wanted was your mind. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they wanted that mind to shut up, and and you know, and so it was just kind of this. So I, I mean, all the, I mean, I all of it is this all the different stages, I think, which never end, right, mm. of self-knowledge self and, yeah. and kind of think, oh, it's going to be, because we're always, you, know, you finish a book and you're like, okay, I'll never write another book again. Yeah. Like, that's it. I'm over. I'm done, <laughs> you know? And you have to kind of reconstruct yourself again and think and, and that you're knowable again and that this knowable, because again, you never write the same book either. You think you know how, to, and then you begin and you think you know how to write a book, but you don't know how to write this book. You know how to write that book that you already wrote. Mm. And so you're a wreck again mm. and you're having to, Not you know. to write the same book one more time. Yeah. That's really hard to change books. But I think that's a moment I imagine that, like a lot of writers uh, experience. I know I did like th that you meet the reader for the first time 
Do you like that, like meeting the reader? What do you mean by you meet the reader? Like when someone you, you reads you and they're like, can you, like, like you said, I like your mind. Yeah. And I think for me, that's when like my experience, like that's when I became a writer, like when I was in school and someone said, I like to read what you write. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. And I think the reader is like so important to become a writer. Do you agree? Yeah, I think that if you didn't have those, yeah, if you absolutely, it's mm. like early on those those they're such individualist and individualized. Mm. They're, they're it's they're 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 teachers mm. mostly. You know, it's kind of incredible. Mm. I mean, it's just like they're probably I don't know how many right. I mean, I guess there are writers who never had teachers, yeah, or ha writers who never were read by teachers. But it seems like it's such an intimate. I guess you could have people you wrote letters to. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's that too. Yeah. I like that about the internet. I feel like a lot of my writing is happening just because I always have um, a reader in mind because I've been on the internet forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like writing letters, but now, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also, there's also yeah. people you want to explain yourself to, and that always changes, too. Yeah. You're kind of like this lousy existence, and you kind of fall in love with somebody, or they're the person you're excited about the most, and you're always kind of explaining yourself to them in, yeah. your, in my head. And pulling and them in, I think, when you're writing, like, come yeah. here, I'm, yeah. uh, I'll just show you something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I think the idea of being a poet feels very like, critical to Eileen in Chelsea Girls, and of course in Inferno. Like, what does it mean? Like, wh why is it so important? To be a poet? Yeah. Well, I was, and also like claiming to be like it's not just like I want to write poetry, right? It's like be a poet. Well, otherwise, what the hell are you doing? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I think the thing that's so great about being a poet is that it kind of frames all your activities. Yeah, running errands. Huh? Running errands in the day. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're running errands as a poet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of. I mean, it's ludicrous, but it's kind of true. It's yeah. sort of like, how do you value your life? How do you value your existence? And I know that when I was younger, I was just traumatized by the the future, and I thought, what am I going to become? And mm. how could it hold everything? And mm. and always, you know, I would have a hundred ideas every day about what I would become. It's just I had I made so many decisions, but I couldn't ever decide on anything. I mm. would just keep making decisions. And mm. so it seemed like, how is anything gonna, ever going to happen? Mm. And when I made the decision to be a poet, it was so great because it was this baggy thing that held everything. Mm. And then I would be okay. I would be sort of forgiven and accepted and included and yeah. um, at large. I don't, I don't ever fully remember the context, but just like a few pages in Chelsea Girls, Eileen is like, I remember Eileen as hurt, but I don't know. And you write, uh, I would be a beatnik. I would make everyone so sad and be so cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is that like to become a poet? Is that also to be... Did you have like this idea of being untouchable? Yeah, in a in a in a bad in a bad way. It's sort of like the game of hearts. You play the card games where you either get all the points or none of them. Mm. And it was like going for none of them. Mm. You know, I mean, like being a poet is like being a huge loser, being <laughs> such a loser that that you're sort of in charge mm. in a way. You know. So it feels like it feels like like to become a poet like was this big need for Eileen in the novel, but like, does the poet, I, I thought like, does the poem have a need of its own? Do does understand? the poem have a need of its own? Yeah, like, I felt like that you, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I was like, what are you talking about? Yes. It's like, no, I mean, like, I think when you write a poem, the thing that's so funny is you don't know how big it is. Mm. You're offering, let's give me a little poem. And you're writing and you're like, ah, oh, mm. this monster, it just keeps wanting. I mean, it's very sexual. Yeah, exactly. It's so like, it yeah. just keeps you like, this is a much bigger poem than I had thought, you know? And yeah. other times I'm going to write a huge poem and then you get about six lines out and you're like, that's it, you know? Yeah. Or you read, you write this long thing and it's all lousy except for that little part. And you're like, that's the poem, you know? Yeah. Because so yeah, because I think I like when I read Chelsea Girls, like Eileen's longing to become a poet is like also the poem's longing to be a poem. Like it's an act of reaching. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a romantic, so maybe that's why. But do you understand what I mean? It's yeah, like no, no, because reaching, longing, like yeah, and there's something inher inherently organic about it. Just as there's something inherently organic about a life, mm. and yet we're not really given so many ways to value it. Mm. You know, mm. I mean, that's not what we're given when we're growing up is like, like, it's amazing that you're alive and you're here and this is great. <laughs> you know, like nobody's saying that. And then you find there's this, this, you could be a saint. You're like, I'm a saint, you know, mm. or you could be a poet. Yeah. You know, or you could be a beatnik. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're really, I mean, I, part of the thing that's funny is that uh, I'm, when I was in, um, I mean, there were the beats in the 50s and 60s mm. and I was growing up then, but already they were on television. You know, okay, yeah. there was a show called, there were two shows. It's so funny. There were ripoff shows. They were like, there was a show called Route 66, uh. which was basically on the road on TV, you know, <laughs> and it was these two guys in a sports car just riding around America. Like, what were they doing? Was it guys? like fiction or was it like, huh? was it fiction or was it like reality TV? No, I mean, there wasn't any reality TV. It okay, was just yeah. like, it was fiction, but it was kind of like a life that everybody wanted to ride around in a sports car all the time and do nothing but that. And then the other show, there was a show called um, Dobie Gillis. Yeah. And it was like, it was kind of this, it was very well written. It was written by a playwright. I mean, early TV was great because the writers were so amazing. But um, there was this, it was about this regular kid and his dad owned a grocery store. But he had this beatnik friend, mm. you know, and he would talk in beatnik talk. And he yeah. would say, you rang? And, <laughs> you know, and, and he wore a dirty sweatshirt. And he just was always like being kind of the philosopher and being kind of dumb. And, and you were like, I can do that. It was it was like, yeah. it was the introduction, because we heard there was such a thing as beatniks, mm. and they talk, you know, magazines would tell us how beatniks talk, mm. and we would try and say that, you know, <laughs> when we were kids. And for Halloween, when you were still in puberty, the last few years when you would still get a, put a costume on, it was an opportunity to be queer, mm. too. You would, I could be a boy beatnik. Yeah. I could just put a sweatshirt on and jeans, and I would have a poem in my back pocket. And you would go to the house of the teenage girl that you really liked, mm. and you would say, trick or treat, and you'd read a poem. You know, I mean, it was like, <laughs> and right away, it was sort of like, cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and then there were actual people. You get to New York, there were actual people doing this. Mm. And, you know, and you meet the king of the beatniks, Alan Ginsberg, and I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. You know? um, I think about beatnik, like your reading style. I don't know if they're uh, related, but I saw you read once when I was in New York. Um, and I never heard you read it before, even though my poet friend Adam, who introduced me to your work, always said that I had to go to pen sounds and listen to your poems. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> What is that? I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like, but really I, I'm listening to poetry can be very uneventful. Mm -hmm. and, espe <laughs> I, uh, and especially on tape. I yeah. was like, I, like, no. And I, and I read your art essays. I really love them. But then I came, yeah. I was in New York and I saw you read and I was like blown away. Because you have this very distinctive way of reading, and it's not only like the style in like it's not only how you read, but it's all like 
you were taking your jacket off and you were talking to a girl in the audience and it was like this very cool, like you were so cool. <laughs> and, and that was like shocking for, like, for being a poet, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, all my poet friends in the audience. Oh. Um, but you also that like, you let the moment like co-create the poem. Yeah. Like what does the performance of the poem mean to you like is it the part of the poem or is it something separate well it's like it's like this great little spaceship that you get in you know you sort of like i mean i mean the thing about the thing about reading a poem like you write a poem and the first time you read it is maybe one of the most wonderful moments mm. it's so much fun because the thing is when you're writing it, you feel very excited. Mm. And if you're lucky, it turns, I mean, sometimes you're very excited and then you look at it and it's terrible, you know, but often, you know, you have this very good feeling. And then when you stand in front of an audience and read it, you have that good feeling, the exact same good feeling again, mm. you know? So it's kind of like you're writing it again in front of people, mm. you know, and it's this glorious feeling. But then it becomes one of your good poems and you know it and you read it a bunch of times. So it's like a song that you know, yeah. and you actually can be like, stopping and saying things and it's sort of because the momentum of the poem is so real and it's so much in your circulation yeah. that you can actually stop and say something and keep going and it's sort of like I mean one of the I guess the experience of it's it becomes your career you're kind of like a nightclub singer or something and you've been <laughs> yeah. doing this for so long because I remember hearing these weird old voices when I first came around there would be like these older poets and you could hear these old weird voices and they were alcoholic and mm. cigarette-y and, and, and you realize, oh my God, these are just like jazz singers. Mm. Like the voice ages and it becomes all these things. But it also this, this confidence thing happens where you just get used to being in front of people. Like it's normal to be, the rest of your life isn't normal, but this part is normal, mm. you know? And so it's really fun to, you know, like a car alarm goes off outside and you're like, does that ruin the reading or does that make the reading really fun mm. you know and I think the latter you know because you can make jokes about it or you can play with it you can allow it into the rhythm of the poem and there's so many I mean part of it is performance art too mm. you know because it's sort of like I think especially if you don't think the text is precious you know it is precious but that doesn't mean you can't kick it around yeah and have a kind of a funky relationship with it you know but like sometimes when you read you're so close to just like to sounds do you understand what i mean like it's not like it's language of course but it's uh -huh. so much like also an experience of sounds oh yeah yeah do you like prefer sounds or language i mean no i don't prefer one or the other but i love when you put words together that kind of blur and mm. it almost sounds like some of the language even mm. though it's it's linear it's actually it's not that it's a ridiculous sentence it's just those words together sound like something other mm. and it's it's just i don't know it's a great weird pleasure do you think there's like different potential in the red poem from the like different potential in like like if you compare um, to hear a poem yeah to read a poem by yourself? oh yeah no it's really different it's really different because it's sort of like i think that's why we go to readings mm. to hear the sound and then when you read them you always hear that then then it releases the sound yeah into you know, and the book is always that. But I think I had a, like a really clear voice before I heard you read. I think like your voice in your speak your speaking voice uh -huh. are the same as your writing voice. I try. I kind yeah. of yeah. I mean, I, again, it was sort of like what gave me permission to write is to, is to make it sound like me. Mm. Even even you know we know what we really hate about poets, right? Is the thing where like my friends often got thrown out. <laughs> 
Ollie pulling her skirt over her head, just standing in the middle of the dance floor. Like every word so important and they put this extra rhythm on it and you just want to die, you know? And it's sort of like, but if you just read it like you're like, just like I got a scar on the inside of my left knee, which looks a little like a, a dog or a scorpion. You know, it's just like, if it just sounds like you, then you're just kind of slipping it into the room with all the other people. Kind yeah. Of. Which poet is it that you quote? Is it in Chelsea Girls that's dying and he says, I never have to go to another poetry reading again. That's nice. Oh, that's Joe, Joe Brainard. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is really, he's a, there's one good, that's one good thing about dying. You never have to go to another poetry reading. Yeah. It was really funny. Like, poets say great things. That my, um, the poet who I describe in here, James Schuyler, who mm -hmm. is a really great poet. In the um, last chapter, no? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what he said, he said it was like, um, somebody, what is, I don't even know what the answer, the question was, but he was like, he said, oh, the writing, the writing, writing poems is the easy part. It's the rest of your life that's the problem. Mm. You know? I was like, that's so great. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but you're talking a lot about giving yourself permission to write. And I thought about uh, an essay that I uh, read in, in your art, art writing book. Uh -huh. How do you say? Like, Importance of Being Iceland? Yeah. Uh, and then you, I quote you, if there were about it identifying as working class. And you write, if there were lighthouses, you'd run them, if you're working class. If there were fish, you catch them. You stop crime, type the letters, not write it. Because mm -hmm. uh, you says that like being working class is to means being forced to support the way the world works. Uh-huh. But for I guess poetry, being a poet is something else. Yeah, yeah. And so you get to be outside of that at like the same time. Like the world, no? Hmm? interrupt the world. Okay. Yeah, but then to say that's your job. Yeah. You know, too. And I think that is working class of me to want to say that. And that, that was part of it, too. It's just like I think when I first came around as a young poet, you know, older poets, you know, you met people who were like 10 years old, older than you mm. and they were bitter. And they were like, you're not going to like make a living as a poet. You know, you got to like be an art writer or be an academic or, you know. A teacher. Yeah, do one of these things so you won't be like a drug addict and one of these freeloader poets like this one, you know, <laughs> and stuff, you know, and yeah. it's sort of, like, but I thought like, no, but if this is, I just felt like if this is really my life, then I want everything to be that, yeah. you know, and I, I mean, I had jobs, I would just have the crappiest jobs on the planet, mm. you know, and, be, but it didn't matter because I was a poet, you know, I really felt like I had to take it completely seriously, even if people were telling me that was a, that was a fool's mission, Yeah, you know, and I think that I feel so happy about it because I feel like it worked, you it know. It did, it did. I mean, it worked, it took about 40 years, but <laughs> I, was, I mean, I was writing poems all that time, but I was very broke. Yeah. You know, and then suddenly... And you're really you're, broke in Chelsea Girls. Real, it's really about... In fact, I remember going to a party, not, I mean, in my 40s, and huh. this woman who was, you know, kind of awful, and she was like, oh, I... She goes, I, this is Eileen. She's famous for being poor. <laughs> I was oh like, what God. a mean thing to yeah. say. But it was like I knew what she meant, and that's what was horrible about it. <laughs> you know, but I think the thing is, you know, it's, it's dirt. Poverty is dirty. We're not supposed to talk about being broke. We're not supposed to talk about money. Yeah. You have money, you're not supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to say, nice pants, how much do they cost, you know? Mm. Or I bought a house, it cost this, mm. you know? But I think that, again, that's like class, you know? It's sort of like people of a certain class don't know not to talk about money. And so in a way, too, I, was feel like, I felt like I was just being working class about my poverty, mm. you know, and just strutting it. And, mm. You know, listing my debts. <laughs> no. Is that is that the reason you often talk often talk about like the career of being a poet? 
you're like, it's a career. And I think that's a funny word. Yeah. Thinking about a poet. Mm -hmm. And you also says that like you're really impressed by poets because they don't know how to do anything. In, in Chelsea Girls, you're like at the birthday party and there's a clown. Yeah. And I, you're like, I'm more I, I guess I'm smarter than the clown, but the clown's making money <laughs> and I can do anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that part. I'm just gonna. Time. And, and in the same essay, you write about, um, as I quoted before, in Iceland, uh, you, you write that as a member of the working class, you were the subject of TV dramas and less likely a writer of them. Mm -hmm. And that got, got me thinking of a chapter in Chelsea Girls. And you have this very stressful book release party in Chelsea Girls. Uh, but the vi vision for your cover of the book is to have your face yes. uh, on the cover. <laughs> so when, uh, But then when it's actually happening, you're not very pleased with how it, how it turns out. Because like everybody's walking around with your book, looking like they have tiny monitors in their hand with mm -hmm. your face on it. But you have like TV in a lot of your work. Oh yeah. And in inferring, you say that you watch poetry rather than listen to it. What's with the TV? I mean, TV was the art form that I was most familiar with. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's sort of like you know, I, I always read. I lived in a family of readers, and 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 so on, but it was sort of like, we didn't go to theater. We went to the movies, but we watched television. Everybody obsessively watched television mm. when I was growing up. And, and te also, television was new. I mean, and it's, it's so, I love the development. It was radio, vaudeville, and then all those characters came into early television, and nobody knew what it was, mm. you know? And so you would have people like, there was a guy, Ernie Kovacs, who had a show, and he just, you know, put his face up close to the camera, and it was goofy, mm. you know? And they were, <laughs> they were comedians, and mm. it was sort of like, it was kind of brilliant. But the thing is, so, I mean, I, I think I've only, I mean, everybody knows this, but sometimes you sort of wake up in different ways to the sense of what your own generation is. And I really was that mass culture generation, mm. like, Everybody was watching the same TV shows mm. when I was growing up. Everybody got the same Beatles album for Christmas. Mm. Everybody was wearing the same clothes. Everybody had the same jobs. Everybody went to Woodstock. I mean, it's really crazy to think about how many masks. I mean, it, within that, you could be a weirdo and feel lonely and separate and not part of it. But nonetheless, you were there. And mm. it was sort of this very particular sense. And there were just so many of us, you know. But for me, like Eileen and Chelsea Girls, she's really a looker. Oh yeah. 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 Does that have to do with the TV or like the is that like the act of looking or you mean like watching things yeah, watching. or feeling or feeling watched? Watch I feel like she's watching things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's sort of like, yeah, it's a pass passivity to it. But also I mean like uh, back to the TV thing too. Uh. It's like part of the desire to live in New York was because um TV was in New York. TV was in New York and in Los Angeles. Mm. And so to get on TV, you had to go to New York and mm. be, you know, and, and people even talked that way in the, in the 70s when I got, when I met people, they would say, so when did you come on the scene? Mm. You know, and they r literally acted like we were on some film set, <laughs> you know, and mm. we were like, one, and it kind of felt a little because it was littler, mm. you know, so that you would just go to New York and meet Allen Ginsberg, you know, you would just be on the scene, you know, mm. and it was a small room. So you, it was kind of like being on a TV set, mm. you know, and early performance art was very much imitating television, mm. you know. Um, How are we doing? 
we, we're life. doing good. Uh, we're going to have a... <laughs> um, that was so not true. <laughs> it was like, it was like we're, you're sitting I, I have too on stage <laughs> in front of all these people. I have too many questions for you. That's the only problem. And, we, and we're going to end with like 50 minutes of questions for you guys, because I guess there's a lot of people that want to ask you questions. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a pressure to put on you, but now you know. Uh, in 92, you com campaigned yes. as president. 91-92. 91-92. long campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't aware of your campaign, campaign at the time. Uh, and I can only imagine it was like uh, understood as a performance or a protest act, act of protest. But like, if you would do it today, it wouldn't be that outrageous like to really try to become president. I think it would be the same. Oh, yeah? Because you would still be the wrong person. Yeah, that's true. You know, because it's the obsession with electable and presidential yeah. and all that. And, and I think there's probably a feeling that a, a poet wouldn't be, you know. Can you tell us a little about your campaign? Yeah. I mean, it was just like, I mean, I, I, part of it was that I um, was doing a kind of... Um, well, I mean, like, you know, being a poet was very cool in the 70s, but mm. in the 80s it was not very cool. It was like telling people that you were like a mime, you know, people were like, oh, you know. <laughs> and by the 90s, performance art was huge. Yeah. And so, there were, so I started doing different kind of, like I started memorizing my poems. Uh. And so you could kind of, you could just have more opportunities to present your work if you just didn't like hold a piece of paper, if you just stood in the room and said it, you know. Mm. And so I was doing that, but I, I realized the problem was, is that I wasn't like a trained theater person. You know, I would be standing there like a little soldier reciting. I couldn't move. I was afraid. I was trying to remember the text. And yeah. so, but I noticed that like as a person, I'm always moving my hands and flapping them around and, you know, and I'm physical. And so I, I started to do like a kind of performance art that was improvisational. Like I would start with a story that I knew, but that I could really tell people, you know? And so I started doing that kind of work. And then that there was the moment when George Bush made a famous speech about the politically correct and how they were the danger mm -hmm. to freedom of speech in America. And I just had one of those light bulbs. I thought, whoa, what if I ran for president, and then I could make speeches and talk about politics mm -hmm. and improvise in a political way, and I could just join the campaign and be carried by it. And, and also, I think I was 39 or 40, and I was starting to feel old. But I had, you know, when I was a kid, you know, first we had Eisenhower, who was this old, bald president, mm -hmm. and then we had Kennedy, who was this, I mean, like, to me, he was old, but they were like, he's so young, and he was 40. Yeah. And so and it was like, like, instead of being an old poet, I'd be like a young presidential candidate. <laughs> You know, so that was, that felt cool. Yeah. You know, and so I just, you know, and so I, I researched it and saw that you could do it by being a write-in candidate because otherwise like conventional candidates have to get thousands and thousands and thousands of signatures. And all I would be doing was gathering signatures and I didn't, I wanted to be making speeches. Mm. So I found a way to, as a write-in candidate, you could step around that. There was a little bit of administration, yeah. but not much. And so with that, I just, and I, and it was pre-internet. And so I had like a mailing list for my art events of like 400 people. So I wrote a letter announcing my candidacy and explaining it to 400 people. And we mailed it out and asked people for $8 and they would get a campaign button and a bumper sticker and they would get these monthly mailings. Mm. 
And it just kind of spread in this crazy way. And it went into all these art magazines and I was on MTV and it just, it just got so much bigger than I ever expected. I didn't like it. <laughs> I wanted to do a little campaign and people kept making it be bigger and asking me. And they, they, people kept having great ideas for you, but they weren't going to do it. It was like, you know, that horrible thing, yeah. like, here's an idea for you Ugh. that will make so much more work for you and I'm not going to help you, <laughs> you know, but this is what you should really do. You know, and so it was really, um, and and it also it never ended. It's like the only because I was doing it like an endurance performance piece, piece, which was that it it started in April of 1991, and the election was November of 92, and so no matter what, I would keep running until then. Yeah, that was my oath. You know, and that my my platform was total disclosure, so I would tell you what I was thinking, <laughs> in extremely honest ways. And I would just, you know, and I would, I would make speeches and I would, you know, and that's so I just had to keep. So you, what it meant was that people would invite you to dinner and then they'd say, oh, how's the campaign, Eileen? And you were like, I don't want to talk about the campaign, <laughs> but you can't not talk about, you know, if yeah. you're running for president, you, you have are to always, talk about it. Yeah. yeah, there's no way out. Yeah. So it was very real. <laughs> in that it was entirely inescapable. It was exactly what I was doing. And I went to 28 states. I went to many far... I, I campaigned outside of the United States, of course. Did you get any money? I may, I broke even. Okay, it that's like, good. That's I good, yeah. Made, I raised $5,000 and I spent $5,000. For a poet, of, that's good. It yeah. was very good, yeah. yeah. Was it easier being political as like a performance artist than as a poet? Say that again? Was it easier being like political oh, yeah. as a person yeah. than a poet? And people and people gave me information. You know, at that again at that time it wasn't like email. It would people would um, be in, you know subscribe to some little political journal and they would say this is very interesting. I think and so I was kind of I mean I had written you know I did journalism at that time and I knew how to get you know read information and then regurgitate it out into an article. But I understood now that I could do that with politics, mm. that it's like, if you gave me information, I could use it, mm. you know? And so it was actually, it was very honest. It was a very honest endeavor because I realized I, I just, I was being kind of a, um, I was distributing political information. And, yeah. and I, and I, people, it was funny because it was both funny and touching. Because I think so many people said, I've never met a presidential candidate before. I've never known anybody who ran for president. Mm. And people felt really touched by it, mm. you know? And so I was, I really was their candidate. Yeah. Whether they voted for me or not, you know? Um, like, but you, you started, like, do you feel like your writing has been polit political always? Because I feel like in Evolution, your latest collection of poems, you have, you have some really political poems. Mm -hmm. Is that something new for you or...? Have you stepped into it later, like the later years, or? No, I mean, I guess I, I, I feel like running for president did make my work more political. Mm. Though I, I, you know, like my, my, I have a poem which I claim to be a Kennedy, mm. and it, it was, it was a poem which I really, because it was. What's political is suddenly understanding the conditions of your life are mm. political. You know, I mean, I realized that that. I couldn't afford to go to the dentist. And I realized, oh, the reason rich people have beautiful teeth is because they can afford to go to the dentist. Mm. You know, and that, that wasn't, my health wasn't privileged in America. There was no health insurance. Mm. I had never had health insurance in my life since I had left my family. You know, that was just the condition of being in America. Nobody cares about your body unless it's a rich body. Mm. You know, and, um, and, and my friends were beginning to die of AIDS. Mm. You know, and, and also when I stopped, I stopped drinking and taking drugs in the 80s. And suddenly... Um, at the same time, I think they um, 
started to close mental hospitals in America and decide we'll deal with them as outpatients. And suddenly there was so many homeless in the subway. You could just smell shit in the subway. People were living in the subway. It was it was so painful mm. to see the, how people were living, you know? And so it was just like, how could you not write about that in your poetry, mm. you know? And so it was just like, I, I became more awake to the conditions of my life. And, and now it's, you know, it's like ridiculous. The political situation in America mm. right now is, is so obscene that, you know, you get these emails and somebody will say, um, we're doing, a, we're doing an anthology of political poems. Do you have anything? And I'm like, ugh, you know, and I say, ugh, and I have something. <laughs> you know, it's like you barely need to raise an eyebrow and you've got a political poem, you know? But it's, it's like, so, like a political poem, like the styles of communication in politics in poetry is so different. Do you find it hard to like combine? No, not at all. Because I mean, it's sort of like a poem is a rhythm. Mm. And so you just let that information come out through your rhythm. Mm. And so it's sort of like, it's not a poem about politics. It is a poem about politics. Mm. It just kind of wriggles and becomes something else. You have a poem. I don't, I don't have the title. Maybe it doesn't have a title from your collection, uh, I Must Be Living Twice. I don't think it's a political poem, but for me, it's like a very resilient poem. And it, I'm going to quote it. Uh, I always put my pussy in the middle of trees, like a waterfall, a piece of jewelry that I wear on my chest like a badge in America so my lover and I can be safe. Uh-huh. And I think it's totally a political poem. Yeah, but yeah. it's like really, it's really, it's not like uh, creep in evolution. It's yes. It's a different style of political yeah, poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, and it was, I think I wrote it in the 90s and when it was very important to write about sex mm. because because our friends were dying and one of the one and and people were being blamed you're being blamed for having sex you're dying because you were you know you're a horrible homosexual yeah. you know and so i think we were all there was a real feeling in the art world that this is a time to talk about sex and write about sex and just really stick your chest out and mm. own it you know can you say something about the pussy as a batch I think that's so. I just want to hear something. Mer well, it's so it's so right. It's so wrong that it's right. Right? We don't think of of pussies are internal. Pussies yeah. are interior. Female space is dark and invisible, and mm. and so on. And so to think of putting a pussy. I mean, it's sort of like beautiful and obscene all at once, mm. you know. And I, it also, it's also who is it? Um, and I love the picture that the pussy is the batch of protection. Yes, that's also like. Uh, and it, it's also picture like it's yeah yeah and it's also language yeah you know it's sort of like the pussy is the word pussy mm. you know and it's sort of like the poem is that badge right mm. uh. how, do, how do you decide between pussy and cunt when you write oh i think by sound yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. i mean cunt is more anglo-saxon okay yeah, yeah, yeah you know i mean english is so great that way because it's just like these it's I mean, it's many languages, but it's certainly French and German mm. colliding. You got these Latinate words, and you got these Anglo-Saxon words, and it's like it's almost like the goodness of a writer is their ability to balance those two parts of it, mm. you know. But people love to say "fuck" because it's like a really good Anglo-Saxon word, mm. and "cunt" is that too. Yeah, it is. I like oh. the sound of it. Pussy's uh, more French. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, Okay, we'll soon take questions. I'm just going to say something more about Chelsea Girls. Because mm -hmm. um, one thing I really love about the um, novel is that it's like very both fragile and great. Like they're both. Uh, and it's like you all have this like prolonged youth or like you're in this very youthful state. And, uh, and sometimes I'm embarrassed by actually how old this youth youthful person is. You know? Yeah, but I think that's amazing. Do yeah. you think that has to to do with like... Um, New York, poetry, or be being queer? 
Because, yeah, I think all of them, and certainly being queer, mm. and and also, and I think class too, because I think it's sort of like I think I always had jobs. I mean, it was just like when I was younger, I just felt like I needed to make money, you know, and I, you know, and I just kind of like. I, I stopped I stopped being a child mm. sort of early in a way and I kind of my dad died and I think I had this desire to suffer and be good and and you know support my family it was crazy it was very melodramatic mm. but it was all the only way I knew how to mourn mm. and so when I got the hell away from my mother and left Boston and got to New York I could have my childhood at last mm. I could be not watched I could have privacy I could have endless time I could you know kind of have a, a kind of freedom that I, even in college, I, you know, I commuted, I had a part-time job. It was shitty. It wasn't fun. It wasn't mm. the college I had anticipated. So I was, yeah, I was having my playtime later. I love a chapter in Chelsea Girls when Eileen and her girlfriend is at like a straight couple's birthday party. And Eileen is the only grown-up who doesn't understand that she's not going to be fed at the party. <laughs> like she's not going to get any food because the food is for kids. Oh, right, 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 yeah. right. <laughs> it's like... And I, I, I like because oh. it's really like these lives, like that's in Chelsea Girls. That is the strange life, uh -huh. like the birthday party and the Toys R Us and everything. And I think a, a big part of Chelsea Girls for me is about wanting, uh, like wanting sex, wanting beer, mm -hmm. like want to write, want to move. And I think like, what do you think is powerful about wanting? Well, it never ends. Mm. It's sort of like it's this machine that just keeps going and going, you know? And then there's like a lot of alcohol and drugs in Chelsea Girls. Sure. And I think uh, I thought about it because like when you really do like a lot of drugs, that's like a job or, or drink a lot. That's like another job you have. Right. Uh, so like what happened with your writing when you stopped drinking? You must have freed so much space. Well, at first I was terrified because I thought, oh my God, how am I going to, you know, what if I can't write? You yeah. know, there was just this myth. But also, like, I think, like, when you're drinking a lot, you write about drinking a lot. Say it again? When like, when you drink a lot? Yeah. You also write about it. Because it's the landscape of your life, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think it, and it, and it, and it enhances that ability to be outside of time. Mm. I mean, it's sort of like, I think that's part of, part of, you know, like wanting to have a childhood, wanting to have more time, wanting to be free, mm. was work in a way. And, and drugs and alcohol made you just, you know, it just kind of opened, I mean, it might, you know, acid made you see the world in a way that you would never see it, mm. you know? And it was like, of course, it was always this way, you know, but it was very, it was very visual and it was very much like childhood and it just opened up, you know, I mean, it's like it, without drugs and alcohol, you have to find other ways to create that sense of spaciousness and time mm. because it's like, you know, we're always like, I'm stressed, I'm really stressed, I'm really stressed, <laughs> you know, how are you doing? I'm so stressed, we're all so stressed. You know, it's horrible, yeah. you know, and, and that has actually indeed really changed. I mean, it's just like, I blame machines. Mm. Because I remember as soon as people had answering machines in the 80s, they were in debt. It was suddenly you walked in the door and you owed people things. <laughs> you know, it used to be that if you didn't get the call, you didn't get the call. Yeah. You know, it was just like, and you know, half the time your telephone had been turned off because you couldn't pay your bill. And it was just like, you were just there. Somebody mm. wanted to see you, they'd buzz your buzzer. If you didn't want to answer, you wouldn't answer. You know, it was like, mm. it was very simple. Mm. And suddenly it seems like each new layer of technology we've had, we've become more indebted and more parceled out and our time is smaller and smaller and I think I think the task 
for all of us is to figure out how to create this sense of spaciousness. But I just have a feeling that you really like your phone. I really like my phone. You don't? I like, kind of do. It's yeah. just, I, I start, actually, today I thought, what if I just admit that I really like this? Because <laughs> sometimes I think I should really have a year, like no phone. And then I'm just lying on my bed reading Twitter or Instagram. I'm like, what is, you I know. Like your photo in this, your newest book is like a selfie in the yeah. mirror. Yeah, yeah. Like Instagram and Twitter. And yeah. I mean, it's a little, I mean, it's it's a little disgusting. It's a little gross. It's a little time hog but it also is very sci-fi you know it's kind of incredible that you could kind of move around the world and take pictures and send them to people and and kind of have this visual diary yeah you know with your friends and the people you know in all these different ways it's kind of amazing and it's not like you're drinking so you're not wasting time on that so maybe you can waste time on your phone no that's exactly what yeah. it is yes yeah but no but 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 i think in answer to your question no that was a great i i had to learn how to write again mm, yeah. when I stopped drinking, you know, because there was just this shock. I was like, oh my, because my mind was so clean. Yeah. I didn't know where to put things anymore, you know? It was like when I was drinking and drugging, it seemed like it was dirty and it had all these little shelves, you know, and I just had a great memory, Yeah. you know, and suddenly it was like, whoosh, my brain got washed and it was like... Like space in your brain, but I imagine also space on the page because you could not write about like wanting beer or being high or like smoking weed or... Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, mo mo actually, my book, um, Not Me, is, is almost entirely sober. Yeah. Book. You know, a lot. And, and so is this. I mean, like, I, there's one chapter here that, you know, the one about the typewriter and just mm. recording our day, that was very drunken. And then everything else is... Yeah, but I think that's that that chapter has a different, like I said, for more stressful or more intense, like, it's, I can feel. Yeah, no, it wasn't easy. No, I, I imagine. Okay, thank you, Eileen. Let's... Ah! Oh. Well, well, thank you. Um, and I just need to say one more thing about um, uh, being an alcoholic or sober. You have an amazing, she has an amazing scene in Afterglow uh, when you're at an AA meeting. Or Eileen, is it an AA meeting? Well, I don't say that. No, you don't. Okay. I don't say that. My I was at a club. Yeah. <laughs> no, because truly, okay, it's like yeah. there is such a thing as AA, and the, the second A means anonymous. So you really can't break that. No, no, no. So if I were a member of it, I couldn't write about no. it. Yeah. You but should read it, though. Well, uh, yeah. So what were you going to say? <laughs> I uh. just loved it with the dog. Because uh, that's like really a place where, where you write about like being sober. So I do. I yeah. do. Mm. I do. Yeah. So I just recommend it. Okay, but let's open up for questions. And, and I have a mic, and you give me a sign, and, and it'll be there in two seconds. Yeah, good. Um. Can we fool it to use of a public? Oh, uh, hi, thank you so much for your conversation. Eileen? Um, here, here. Yes, here. Oh, okay, yeah. great, thank you. Um, I was wondering if you yeah. ever felt like uh, not writing anymore, if you wanted, ever wanted to quit writing, and how you overcame that. Oh, no. I mean, I feel like I've had the fear that I can't write anymore or that I won't write or I, um, no, I've never wanted to not write. I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not, yeah, I don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I usually just, I write lots of different kinds of things. So I usually, if I, if I can't write, I usually just write something else. 
you know. And you and often I think I I do have a kind of an aesthetic of stealing, which is that I started to write when I was like at part-time jobs and stuff, and I was just you know like killing time and 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 so it was always a little bit of a stolen time thing. So often I have to steal writing from other kinds of writing to keep writing. Um, I don't see what would be so great about not writing. I don't understand how people don't write. I was like, what do you do? You know, it was just like, you just kind of live. I was like, it seems so scary. Um. Good. Hi. Hello. Um, you're very funny speaking, and you talk a lot about performing. Have you ever like tried stand-up comedy or thought about it? Um, I would love to do it, but it seems like the most terrifying thing in the world. It seems like being executed. <laughs> um, I think I even meant to. I think I meant to do it one night, and I sort of wrote a piece called Stand Up, and I had notes on the podium that I referred to constantly. So I don't know. I don't know if I have the nerve for it. You know, I I just think it's like I, I like I think the thing about stand up that seems so intense is that you have this goal, which is to make. I mean, it's sort of like nice to be funny by accident, but to be standing there with the purpose of being. I mean, I guess comedians now aren't necessarily being funny all the time, and so that's the good news. You know, <laughs> for you, yeah. yeah, yeah, or yeah, because I just think it seems like a terrifying responsibility. You know, to be standing there saying something and you're like, oh, that wasn't funny. And then say something else, and you're like, that wasn't funny either, you know? And you just keep... St I mean, it seems like porn. It's just like porn is is supposed to make people get off. It has a purpose. Yeah. And so does comedy. And I just think I don't have a purpose, really, when I write or... I really wanted to ask you about being funny in your books, but it's, like, impossible to talk about. Like, how are you funny? Yeah, I don't know. And most of the time, you don't know what's funny. You, you You're like, oh, they laughed at that. Or you think something's funny, and you're like going along thinking I'm getting to the funny part, you know? And then you probably deliver it like, <laughs> you know, it's gonna be funny, right? And nobody laughs, and you're like, I guess that wasn't, so you can't even control what funny is. So I, yeah, I think, I, I, don't, I don't think I, I'd love to do it, um, but I don't know if I can do it. You're welcome. What do you think is funny? What do I think is funny? Yeah, like what do you think is funny? Like what do you like? What makes you laugh? I mean, surprise! It's a surprise. Oh my god! I wanted to ask you about the surprise. Yeah, because I really feel like you're working with the surprise a lot in your poetry. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's sort of like because you just change the subject all the time. I mean, it's sort of like before this runs out, you want to put something else in real fast. Yeah. Do you surprise yourself when you write? Or oh, like yeah. Surprise the it's reader. Yeah, it's only surprising because I'm surprised. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think. Anyone else? This is such torture, right? We're like, like we're just, Good. we're two Buddhas. We're just gonna sit here. <laughs> well, I have a similar question, which is like, why didn't you do this? You're obviously brilliant at what you do, but you're talking a lot about films. You have some career advice for yeah. that. We're just like, tell us both what no, we should do with our lives. No, but you're talking about film, and why? Um, did you did you think about that? Going like making directing films, or or can you we maybe see that in the future? Yes, yes. In fact, I mean, literally, I have made and I made a 17-minute Super 8 puppet road film. The pu the same puppets that are in the book. Okay, have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I made and so that's going to actually it's going to be on. I don't know, 
Vimeo or whatever pretty soon and screened here and there. It could have been screened here, but I think they didn't want to do it. Or something. You're writing the screenplay for Chelsea Girls? Yeah, um, Amazon op optioned Chelsea Girls for a film, and then they hired me as a screenwriter, and then I wrote a screenplay. And then Amazon became something else the next, you know, they have all the, you know, and then they didn't re-option it. And so now it's like kind of a little screenplay without a producer. But I think it'll probably happen. And I've, yeah, so I, I've sort of, I, mean, I always wanted, I just didn't know how to enter that world, you know, and I have to some extent now, but nothing has been produced. You know, I've written. Well, the thing about poetry is that nobody can stop you, <laughs> you know, and you can just do it whenever, however. Yeah. You know, it has no expense. You know, it's just kind of like there's no apparatus. You're just if. You know? I can't with the hassle with making movies, like getting money, blah, 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 blah. Exactly. You know, I mean, and that you can, you know, it's sort of like, I think it is like being an actor. I, I, when I realize that actors can't work unless you give them a play to be in. They just can't walk around the apartment acting. You know, it's just not the, and it's, a film is like that. It's like you could write, I mean, I've written a screenplay, but where's the film? You know, and so you could actually spend a lot of time writing things that nobody ever sees. Yeah. And that seems kind of really hard. So, I mean, the good news is I got paid for what I wrote, so I'm lucky in that That's sense. That's good. But, yeah. So I hope, I hope you know, it's, it's a really funny art form. That's what I do know is because the thing is, you write a screenplay. I, sh I wrote a screenplay, and I showed it to somebody who had read the book and liked the screenplay, but she said, she goes, you know, I, I really expected the film to have lots of, like, cups of coffee and looking <laughs> out the window, and I was like, yeah. And she goes, well, it's not in there. And I was like, oh. <laughs> It's like you have to put everything in. You have to write dull moments, like person looks out window, you know, like person looks at cup of coffee, coffee bubbles. You know, it's like all the stuff that you wouldn't think of writing because it's sort of like the way we write poems and novels. You know, you write something and then the reader thinks something and then you write something and you're just always playing with the person doing half the work. And in screenplays, you're basically making a blueprint for all these people who have jobs. Mm. You know, so that everything has to be included. It's a whole other consciousness. Look, there we are. Yeah. Yay. Please. Oh, go get please. your mic experience, mic. please. Yes. One of them is about your authorship. Um, and authorship. So do you have yeah, your writing? Yes. Do you, uh, what is the rituals? Do you have any rituals for writing or... Uh, I, I do, but I mean, I have a lot of different rituals, you know. Like I have one that's very healthy and good and you just get up and you um, drink coffee and you read and then you go exercise and then you meditate and you eat and then you sit down like this perfect person and write and that really is great. But I can't always put that together, you know? And I found that you can make up little cartoon rituals. Like I have a, the last story in this book, I had a, I, I invented like this poet James Schuyler. Um, usually, usually I would write these stories like years after the events, you know, but I worked with this poet and he was very special and he died. And I just felt so full of the details of the information and I wanted to break my own rules and write about him very soon. And so I just, I had this orange chair in my apartment and I, what I did was I put a legal, a yellow legal pad paper next to the orange chair and I just made this deal that every time I came into the apartment, I would sit down on the orange chair and write a paragraph. And I wrote the book, I wrote the chapter that way, and it just 
was kind of just like those were the rules of the game, and that's how it worked. And it was, and I think it's great because the story winds up being a story about the Chelsea Hotel and moving between these different rooms. And I think the entrances and exits of my own apartment mm. produced the energy of the story, which I don't, I didn't even know. I mean, yeah. And so I think it's sort of like different rituals make different work, you know? And so I think, I mean, it's funny that like when people take writing workshops, they give you prompts. And I think the, the, the only thing different between having a workshop and having a career is you just give yourself prompts for the rest of your life, you know? And, and some of them are literally about how the work is produced. Yeah, and you change, and the writing change, and the ritual change because of the writing. It, it ha it's somehow connected. Yeah. Um, one of the other questions I have is about what we see in Sweden is that we see um, a lot of people writing poetry, and the center is really like is starting to getting a voice. Mm -hmm. And you've been such a big part of the poetry scene. And how would you say it has changed from when you began your writing or when you start to be a part of this? stage and mm -hmm. how do you see it now you mean the poetry world yeah exactly i mean there's just many there's so many more i mean it's like everything it's like there's so many more people writing you know it's so much bigger and so it's sort of like there's lots of little i mean there always were separate little groups but now there's so many you know and i think also you know like obviously the internet has really changed it and i, I think it's sort of like as much as there are still print publications that people want to get their poems in everybody knows that like you want you you feel kind of sad if it's just in the New Yorker. You know what I mean? Like you want it to be on, you know, Instagram, and you want it to be. You want people to be able to find it. You know, it's, and people can't find it unless it's on the web now. You know, so that's really different. You know, and I think I think you know we're in such a writing culture again now with texting and stuff. And so I think people are much more verbal. In fact, and it's so interesting that there's this one thing going on where supposedly people don't read books in the same way, but people are writing more, you know. And also, I think audiobooks is very different and very exciting. People are listening, you know, to us. Our writing. Are you listening to audiobooks? Are you listening to to audiobooks? Yeah, I mean, uh, in the states, audiobooks are huge right now, you know, and it's it's very exciting. And and so you'll meet people, and they'll be like, "We just drove country cross country, and we were listening to Chelsea Girls. It was so great, you know." And you realize you have you suddenly have this experience. You're like a, a musician, you know, like it's sort of like you're kind of the soundtrack to people's lives, or your friends who are visual artists are listening to books now. And so it's 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 a very different it's a different world. And I think that's great that the the reading is portable. No. Okay, Eileen. Is that it? Was that? <laughs> Do you want that? more? No, no, no. Portable is a good word to end on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's very yeah. I think it is. Thank you so much. Yay. Okay. Okay.